My name is Wendy. I'm going to be reading from the Bible for us this morning. We're going to be reading five different segments um, from 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Um, the passages will be on the screen, but if you are following along in your own copy of the Bible, uh, please open up to 1 Kings chapter 21. We'll start there with verses 17 to 24. One Kings 21 from verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. Now we'll read from chapter 22, verses 1 to 8. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, don't you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram. So he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, there is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. Now, uh, chapter 22, verses 29 to 38. So, 
the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now, the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting, I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army, every man to his town, every man to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, where the prostitutes bathed, and the dogs licked up his blood, as the word of the Lord had declared. We turn now to two kings, chapter 9. Verses 1 to 10. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run, don't delay. So the young prophet went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us, asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel the whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. And finally, we'll read from verse 21 to 37. 
Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, Pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab his father when the Lord spoke this prophecy against him? Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagan. Jehu chased him, shouting, Kill him too! They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Gur near Iblim, but he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his ancestors in his tomb in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king of Judah. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, This is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like dung on the ground in the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, This is Jezebel. Ah, the best book to read is the Bible. (laughs) I'm John, for those of you who are normally at the 5.30 service, uh, you've been missing out on the last five episodes as we've walked our way through the life of Elijah. And last uh, time I was with you, Elijah died. He was taken up to be with God. But that wasn't the end of the story. There's this postscript this, this snatch grab of uh, Bible sections that I've put together today. 
because something much more profound was happening as the story went on. Of course, in Elijah's story, there's a number of main characters. There's Elijah himself, Elijah the Tishbite, the prophet of God. There's King Ahab, the king of the Israelites, and his wife, Queen Jezebel. And probably the most important uh, character in all of this story is the Lord God. We've already been through the episodes of the drought and the episode of Mount Carmel, the episode of Elijah dropping his bundle at Jezebel's murderous threats after Mount Carmel, and of God sustaining him. We now come to this aftermath. Let's pray. Our Lord, it's already been prayed earlier today that you would give us soft hearts to receive your word. Your word today, our Father, which in many ways is a, is a hard word, a difficult word, a, a word which is full of these accounts that are so raw. Father, by your spirit, may you interpret these for us in ways that will bring us on in godliness and growth in Jesus. Amen. King Ahab had all the marks of true royalty. He, uh, he never had a steed that rode at Ascot or at uh, Newmarket or even the Melbourne Cup. But given the opportunity, Ahab would have absolutely enjoyed the sport of kings, horse racing. How do I deduct that? Well, when that drought that Elijah prophesied that came at the word of God, that drought for three years, we find at one point there that Ahab is out looking for fodder. He sends out his people to find food, food to keep his royal stable alive. And I want you to catch with me the irony in this. In the Hebrew language, there's a word for a horse that was swift, that was very, very fleet of foot. And that word in Hebrew is kwalal. Kwalal. I'm probably pronouncing it all wrong, but kwalal. It referred to, to the galloping hooves that just barely touched the ground as the horse raced along. So light was the contact with the turf that it was a nothing. Kwalal. And the irony comes when that same word is used to describe King Ahab. In 1 Kings 16, verse 31, it says this, Ahab not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but not only considered it trivial, the English word that we have there, trivial, translates that Hebrew word kwalal, a light thing, a nothing, something of no consequence. And for this, God gave him the infamous tag that Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. What a terrible epitaph. Kwalal. Ahab regarded God's ways as, as so inconsequential that they were a, 
a nothing to him. They were just a galloping hoofbeat across the sand. Ahab didn't believe that God would do exactly what God had said he would do, both in his promises and his warnings. And part of what we need to see here today is that we can't treat God's word lightly, that we can't treat God's ways as trivial, as qualal. For the Lord is God, and he'd proven that with that three-year drought. He'd proven it at Mount Carmel when he evaporated the bull that was saturated with water, with the fire that came down from heaven. God does not waste his breath uttering hollow threats. His words are not to be dismissed as of no account, as qualal. In fact, the very opposite is true. God's word will accomplish exactly what he intends. God's word will achieve his purposes for which he sends it, says Isaiah. And this certain fulfilment is the striking lesson before us here. Yes, these passages that, that it was Wendy, wasn't it, who read them out so well, these passages ascribe for us the, the violent end of, of Ahab and Jezebel. They're, they're graphic, they're, they're gory, they're not the sort of thing that you read to your six-year-old at night. But they forcefully hammer home that none of us can afford to take God lightly. Even kings and queens, even the most powerful people, must front up to the Lord sooner or later and they must face him on his terms. And we see today this long arm of the Lord, an arm that is very long indeed. We didn't read the whole story about Naboth, but Naboth had been murdered by Ahab and his vineyard swindled from him by this king. And through God, Elijah comes to Ahab with a gruesome word of prophecy and he says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, the dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours, Ahab. And concerning Jezebel, said the Lord, dogs will devour Jezebel by the walls of Jezreel. For Ahab, divine retribution. The Lord will not forget Ahab's evil ways. And as for Jezebel, well, she wasn't even fit to be buried. This was God's gruesome prophecy. But would God's word come true? Would they escape? Could they escape the long arm of the Lord? Well, we read ahead, didn't we? We got the spoilers. We know the answers. But let's pretend for a moment that we don't. Let's follow the trail and see what happens to them as this story unfolds through the scriptures. When Elijah first made that prophecy, Ahab may have, may have a little trembled in his royal boots, perhaps just for a touch. You know, he was easy, though, to wipe off, was Elijah. He was a social dropout, but he did sort of have runs on the board. Even Ahab would have been impressed by the spectacle of Mount Carmel. But as time wore on and nothing bad happened to Ahab, 
the prophecies of dogs slurping up his blood, well, Ahab probably just began to scorn those statements. It probably became just a good after-dinner joke amongst his friends. Another bit of qualal. Ahab, you see, didn't change his ways. For when we pick up the story in chapter 22, it's three years later. And Ahab and Jehoshaphat, the king from Judah, were holding a council of war against a common enemy in Aram. And who does Ahab consult about likely victories? Well, we read it. He calls on another 400 prophets to look into their crystal ball. And to a man, they all bow down and kiss his royal ring. And they say, yes, go. The Lord will give you success. But Ahab is just a result tricksing in, isn't he? These are false prophets. Jehoshaphat from Judah, he recognises this and he says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here that you can ask? Nah, we don't want to ask him, says Ahab. He never says anything nice about me. That's a little bit like what it says in the book of Timothy, isn't it? People only want to hear what pleases their itching ears. But when Jehoshaphat finally persuades Ahab to consult God's man, Ahab is told that he will die in battle. What's the king's response? Does he fall repentant on his knees? Does he, does he put on sackcloth and ashes? Does he, does he call on God for mercy? No. If you continue to read the passage, he throws the true prophet into the slammer, gives him bread and water. He doesn't care what God says. He's made up his mind to go to war regardless of God. Qualal, again and again. But maybe there's just an inkling in the back of his mind that, that what God had warned three years early was having an effect on the king. It, it would be hard not to remember the dogs and blood prediction when a second prophet foretells your death in battle. Maybe Ahab thinks that there's a ring of truth in this after all. And his actions show that, that like a hound chasing down its quarry, the word of the Lord was snapping at the heels of Ahab. But Ahab's the king. He's the one who always regards himself as right. He's the one who, who just regards grosser evils as qualal. The law of the Lord is trivial. He's smarter than God. He'll not only win the battle, he thinks, against the enemy, but he'll win the battle against God's decrees and he'll preserve his life. He won't get killed in battle at all. He's glad in a way that God has revealed what's going to happen to him. For Ahab can now do something about planning his own to counter the Lord. And so he goes to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and he says, my Conrad in arms, my, my fellow king, when we go off into battle, you wear all your royal regalia, your blue vestment, your golden crown, your royal scepter. You have your bodyguards ride with you as one as befits your noble personage, and you give all the commands. But me, look, I'll just go as an ordinary trooper. 
I'll go in disguise. I'll not draw any attention to myself. And in that way, we'll surprise the king of Aram. He'll think he's only fighting one army. He won't be expecting double trouble. And Ahab, I'm sure, was pleased with himself. He may well have hidden his true selfish motives under some rationale cloak like that. But Ahab, you don't fool God. You can't pull on a different armour over your body. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. And as we read, during the battle, even after they discovered they weren't fighting the king of Israel, someone drew their bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armour. Remember that little rhyme that you might have said as a child? I shot an arrow in the air. Where it lands, I know not where. Well, some soldier, perhaps in frustration, having to break off the attack, he just let fire willy-nilly, aiming at nothing. He didn't know and didn't care where it was going to land. But God did. And under God's direction, that random arrow was never random at any point. And it found the very, very small gap between the, bla- between the plates of Ahab's armoured disguise. And he died as a result of the battle. I read a passage of the scriptures like this and I'm reminded afresh of just why it is that, that I don't believe in, in consequence or coincidence, or luck. For here I am face to face with the God who is sovereign, the God who controls absolutely everything, the God who even determines every roll of the dice. For that's what it says in Proverbs 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every direction is from the Lord. Put this incident of a a random arrow against the backdrop of the living God who moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. And it's inconceivable that Ahab's fatal wound is anything other than the purpose and by the hand of the living God. The long arm of the Lord had caught up with Ahab Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. You can't outsmart God. And what of that prophecy about about dogs licking up his blood? Well, after Ahab dies, we're told in verse 38 of that chapter that, that his chariot is taken to be washed out beside a pool. Not exactly a pool of sparkling clear water. This is the pool where prostitutes would clean themselves up. At a filed end to a defiled man. And a collection of stray and mangy dogs hang around that pool. And they lick up Ahab's blood as it splashed down into the dirt. Just as the word of the Lord had spoken. 
Be sure of this. God's word will achieve its purposes. You can't outsmart God. God says in Ezekiel, the soul that sins will surely die. Here is a clear warning for us that that our wrongdoings will cut us off from the Lord and all his goodness forever. Do you think you can outsmart God by, by disguising yourself so that you don't look like a sinner? Do you think you think you can hide out here in, within the community of God's people in a church and, and you'll give God the slip? Ahab pretended to be someone he wasn't. You can put on an air of dignity and a a mantle of decency and a covering of good works and a robe of religious piety. You can put on the appearance of being a good person. But do you want to know a secret every minister will tell you? Week in and week out, across Australia, across the world, good people like that die and are buried. I hear their relatives tell me, Oh, he was such a good man. He always tried to do the right thing. He'd never hurt a fly. And I cry, for God has made it plain in his word that our goodness is never good enough to get us into heaven. God is not deceived. Our good works won't cancel out our sin. We're fools to think that, that self-righteousness outsmarts God any more than Ahab's disguise confused the Lord. Man looks to the outward appearance, but the Lord looks to the heart. He looks to the heart. He looks to your heart. He looks to your heart right now. What does he see? Only you and the Lord know if you're experiencing the trauma of transparency as God looks at you. Only you and the Lord know whether his searching eye has found in you double standards between what's on the inside and what's on the outside. No one else here can can tell if your profession to be a Christian is really a pretense. But then... That's small comfort. For it's only the Lord who is our judge. He is the one who holds the keys of heaven and hell. And if you know that you are not right with the Lord, or if you're unsure if you're going to go to heaven or not, then friends, do business with God today. For this is how he works through his spirit, by means of his word, to make you aware that things aren't right between you and your maker. And he prompts you to act on that stirring within. In the same way, he warns us with the truth. The soul that sins will surely die. So the Lord also gives us the promise of truth, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our saviour. We can throw away our disguises. We can can discard our pretenses. We can can chuck away our own self-righteousness. And instead, we can take hold of the gift of life that God offers to us in Christ. 
There are friends here in your congregation that you know who've got that gift of salvation. Go and talk to them. They'll help you come to grips with, with your life and to change it for eternity. We can learn from Ahab. We can't outsmart God. We can't escape the long arm of the Lord. The word of the Lord will come true. And either his warnings will consume you or his promises in Christ will save you. It's 2022. Can you tell me what was happening in your life 17 years ago? A few eyebrows went up 17 years ago. What was that? I could see Jenny over there doing the calculations. Oh, that was 2005. 2005, you know. What happened in 2005? For some of you, it might have been your 25th wedding anniversary. Maybe it was the year that you were blissfully wed. Perhaps 2005 was, was a big year for you. You're doing HSC. Maybe in 2005, you started uni. You got your first real job. Well, as a few memory joggers, Google's great. George W. Bush and, and Tony Blair were strutting the world stage. And locally, John Howard was uh, heading the nation here and Bob Carr was the Premier of New South Wales. Hadn't yet resigned. And in 2005, who remembers a thing called MySpace? Oh, blankness around the place. Believe it or not, that was the largest social network platform in that year. And if you went off to the movies, then the blockbusters would have been things like Madagascar, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And on the box, you would have been watching the, the first season of Grey's Anatomy. And Rove McManus got a gold logie. And Ray Martin was retiring again. 2005. Seems ages ago, doesn't it? It's yonks ago. You probably can't remember what anyone actually said to you 17 years ago without dredging your memory banks very deeply. And even then, it would have to be a very, very significant comment to be recalled. 17 years. I suspect it was like that for Queen Jezebel. She must have all but forgotten that that crazy old prophet Elijah with his even crazy predictions. This annoyance of a man who, who had long ago disappeared into the desert sands with his rash words. It had been 17 years since Elijah had made those threats about dogs feasting on her flesh by the walls of Jezreel. <laughs> 17 years had passed, and yet she was still in the palace. She was still there at Jezreel as, as the queen mother. She was still alive. It was Elijah who'd vanished. Jezebel had long outlived this, this servant of God. But Jezebel was about to learn that though the mill of God may grind exceedingly slowly, it grinds exceedingly small. If she ever gave Elijah a thought, she would have considered herself well out of danger. 
During the past 17 years, not one jot or tittle of God's word looked like coming true towards her. But then the long arm of the Lord tapped her on the shoulder. It was time for her to be dealt with, exactly as Elijah had chillingly foretold. After 17 years, God's hand through the ministry of Elisha and through the actions of Jehu brought it all to fulfilment. And as we read, after she'd been thrown down from her palace window, having done her eyes and combed her hair, she looked beautiful for that last moment. All that remained after she was thrown down from that palace window was the skull, was her feet, was her hands, for a pack of dogs at the foot of that wall had devoured the rest of her flesh. Oh, Jezebel, you may outlive a servant of God, but you cannot outlive God. His word will accomplish his purpose. It matters not what happens to the, to the person of God who has spoken the truth to you in keeping with the gospel of Jesus. They might have, they might have left your neighbourhood. They might have changed jobs. They might have gone to another parish. They might have dropped out of your circle of friends. They might have irritated with you with what they said about, about God's truth and about coming judgment and about salvation in Christ. They may no longer be around to make you feel uncomfortable by their presence. But don't confuse the messenger with the message. For no amount of time will blunt the sharp edge of God's truth. Is it 17 weeks? 17 months? 17 years since you first heard the call of God upon your life to escape the coming judgment, to flee from your sin and flee to the cross. It doesn't matter how long ago it was, that truth remains truth. And the question now is still the question that it was then. Have you responded in faith to the call of God on your life? Is Jesus your Lord and your Saviour? Is God the Lord over you? For many of you, you are living for the Lord and we praise him and rejoice in his salvation. But if you're not, if you're in the same boat as Jezebel, assuming that just because nothing's happened in all this time that nothing ever will happen, assuming that God's threats or God's promises are just hot air, then each day that goes by without you responding to God's call to put Jesus in charge of your life is a day closer that you are to standing before the Lord and being accountable to him for what you've done with your life. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read this. Do not forget one thing, 
With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to salvation. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to salvation. God's word will be fulfilled. The long arm of the Lord will not be denied. You can't outsmart God. You can't outlive God. But you can come to new life in Christ. And have all of your sins forgiven before the long arm of the Lord deals with you. None of us know the moment when the silver cord of our life will be snapped. And as surely as the Lord directs the path of a random arrow, so he holds our very next breath our very next heartbeat. You can't outsmart God. You can't outlive God. But in Jesus, God has given us the way out. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we want to bow before you and we want to acknowledge that you are Lord. You are Lord of all. And our Father, in your Lordship, we don't know how, but you love us and you are merciful to us and you are full of grace toward us. And that in Jesus you have paid the price for all of our sins through his death on the cross. Father, by your spirit, may we not treat that as anything trivial. May we not treat the cross as inconsequential. May we not treat the resurrection of Jesus as, as qualal. And Father, even if we've heard your word a long time ago and we've tend to put it in the back burner and, and ignore it, Father, wrestle with us today that we might remember that your word will come true. Father, help us to live for you with all that you give us. For we pray this in your name. Amen.